Well, I'd like to open up this morning telling you about a 20th century theologian uh, by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spent his adult life pondering a single question. That question being, what did it mean to declare oneself a follower of Christ? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran theologian born in Germany, educated in the United States. Um, after his education in seminary, he went back to Germany and served in the German church. Now, his service in the German church happened at the time of the Nazi takeover in Germany. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer spent most of his pastoral career forming a Christian resistance. You see, one of Hitler's strategies in Germany was to control the church in order to control the people. So he orchestrated and he declared an official Nazi church that was nothing to do with Christianity. It was an apostate church, as we could assume. Uh, this church glorified the Nazi party and it tickled the ears of so-called believers at the same time. There occurred a great schism within Germany when an election was cast for presbyters. So in this time, presbyters were actually elected. That means pastors. There were, there were nominations held and, and pastors were elected. Well, during this election, there were two options. When the ballot was cast, there was an option for pastors from the, the German Landekirche. That was the, the Protestant German church. This is what we would call uh, the true Christian church in Germany at that time. And the second option was for the German Christian Church, a.k.a. the Nazi Party. Well, you can probably guess which direction the ballots were cast. When they were counted, it turns out that the Nazi Church won the election. And Hitler, with the Nazis, came in and formed the official Nazi Christian Church of Germany. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as a faithful pastor, started to experience something. He started to see whole congregations and even his pastor friends capitulating to the Nazi party. Where at once he had fellow pastors who were faithful, they were turning to the Nazi party for fear of persecution and even death. Christians were apostatizing by joining the Nazi party and were claiming high moral ground in doing so. And what Dietrich Bonhoeffer needed to know, he needed to know was what he was standing for worth it when Droves of pastors that he saw, and that were his friends, were leaving the church and, and going to the Christian church, or the, excuse me, the Nazi church. He needed to know if he was crazy. He needed to remind himself that Christ's call to follow meant to follow to whatever ends that meant. His call was to be faithful despite the ends. See, the apostate congregations, they convinced themselves that being a true disciple of Christ was not absolutely necessary. They believed in something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. This grace that says that you can profess Christ and turn away and Christ's grace will still cover you. They believed that they could deny Christ and at the same time, Christ's grace would cover them. They could, they could run to the Nazi party for safety and God would understand. Well, you probably know the end of the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Two weeks before the Allies liberated a concentration camp that he was in, he was hung. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer remained faithful to the gospel 
when others did not. And that question, what does it mean to declare oneself a follower of Christ, is what we are going to be looking at today. And just as Dietrich Bonhoeffer had, we have the same Word of God that addresses that very question. What does it mean to declare oneself a follower of Jesus Christ? Or might we say, a disciple? Let me open with prayer. Father, we're humbled to be here today. We love you and we love your church. We are thankful for the good news of the gospel that you have given us. You have said that you have come and you have offered us a great salvation. And what is required of us is from us to turn from our sins and turn to you in allegiance, that we live our lives as, as slaves under Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are thankful for that calling. And I pray that this message today would remove any hurdles to the gospel for those who do not believe and would strengthen the hearts of the believers here today. We love you and we pray that you would give me the right words to say, to preach faithfully uh, for the glory of your name. Amen. So in our venture to answer that crucial question, what does it mean to declare oneself a follower of Jesus Christ, we find ourselves in the book of John. So John is always a challenging read. Uh, it's not like the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have here in one category. They, they mostly read like a narrative. We interpret them in the same ways. Well, the gospel of John is written with many more literary clues. So John is a, a language artist. He uses lots of imagery to prove one point. And what's great about the book of John is John tells us exactly why he writes the book. In John 20, 31, John says through Jesus that he writes this book that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is the hermeneutical principle for studying John, for preaching John. The book was written so that the Messiah that was foretold in the Old Testament was shown to be Jesus, and that these Jews who were awaiting this Messiah knew Jesus to be that Messiah. And in believing in Jesus, you may have life in his name. Now there's words in there that are pregnant with meaning, and we're going to look at those today. So knowing this purpose will drive this morning's exposition of John. So our text this morning is from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. So if you'll turn with me, we will begin. But before we hop in to verse 1 of chapter 3, I think it's important that we review the context that we find ourselves in. I think we all understand what is in the pericope. The, the verses 1 through 21 falls John 3.16, and I think we all know that one by heart. But if we understand the context that John is writing in, we start to understand what, what Jesus is actually saying in John 3.16. So if you remember, John starts his gospel by demonstrating a few things. His preeminence, his authority, and his divinity. If you remember chapter 1, verse 1, he starts with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is saying that Jesus came down as God incarnate in the flesh. And John went on to explain that Jesus came as the full and the final revelation of the Word of God. He says in John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh. 
And then John starts the process of declaring Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah by tying him to Old Testament references. He does this in a way that the Jews would understand. He's pulling these passages of scriptures that the Jews spend their life memorizing. He even quotes Isaiah 40, which paints John the Baptist as the forerunner of Jesus. Isaiah 40 reads, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Jesus is, is quoting the Old Testament to remove any obstacle that the Jews might have in believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And then John goes on to tell us the account of the calling of the first disciples. We have the story of how Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel were called from their occupations to, to join Jesus. And all of these accounts tell of two things. One, these men left everything that they knew to follow Jesus. And two, they made a profession. And that profession was Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. They left their lives to follow him. Now, this is important. We have to remember this. That John uses a very specific word, a disciple. Jesus is calling these men to leave what they know, to have a new life, and to follow Jesus. These men were disciples. Then John goes on to continue to establish Jesus' authority. And he does this by retelling the miracles at Cana, among others. And all while you see dissent from the Pharisees, the ruling group in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, you see, the gospel of Jesus was very threatening to the Pharisees. It threatened their way of life. It threatened their status. And we will see more in detail why it was so threatening. But we have to remember, the Pharisees aren't the good guys here. They're opposing Jesus at every turn. So coming up to the beginning of chapter 3, we have this point. Jesus has come proclaiming to be the Son of God. He has started to fulfill prophecy. He has reached back in the Old Testament and pulled out Scripture that these Jews know. And he's claiming that he is the Messiah that's foretold. Jesus has demonstrated his authority and his power through miracles. And the Pharisees have questioned him at every turn. Jesus has called disciples to follow him. We saw that with the four disciples earlier. And then there are some that have started to follow Jesus at the end of chapter 2. And I'll read. Chapter 2, verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name as they observed signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all people and because he did not need anyone to testify about mankind, for he himself knew what was in mankind. You see, what we have here is what we would call the equivalent of a first century bandwagon fan. We have these followers of Jesus. They're not like the disciples. The disciples were called from their occupations and left. They, prof they professed Christ as the Messiah. This group was consumed with infatuation for the supernatural. So Jesus had been performing these miracles. We were told at one at this point in time, but we were also hinted, John hinted that there were many more that Jesus was performing. And this group was following Jesus for what he could do. These were not the same as Christ's disciples. And we know these men's motives by the way Jesus responds. He refuses to entrust himself to them. And we know that Jesus never refuses anyone who is willing to forsake all to follow him and his gospel. So we have two groups. We have the disciples that were called and that left everything to follow Jesus. Then we have 
these group of men that were followers. And the scriptures even say that many believed in his name. They believed in Jesus. But it seems they don't fall in the same category as the disciples. So John presents a paradigm where you have true followers and you have false followers. You have true disciples on one side and you have false disciples on another. So now you see John as a very specific context that we find ourselves today in John chapter 3. And we're able to do what John hasn't been able to do yet in the book, but we're able to answer the question, what does it mean to declare oneself a follower of Jesus Christ? Or as we put it, a true disciple. The timeless truth of the sermon today is Jesus' offer of salvation is a call for discipleship. And to structure our time, I've outlined today's sermon in three points. Number one, true disciples are born again. Number two, true discipleship is costly. And number three, true disciples believe and follow the true Jesus. It sounds simple, but the gospel is simple. So point number one, true disciples are born again. Follow with me as we start in John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs unless you do them, signs unless you, you do, unless God is with him. Jesus responded and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, in the first three verses of John, John describes an encounter with a certain man in the Pharisees, this man named Nicodemus. But for us to gra grasp the message that John is communicating, we, we really have to answer two questions right out the gate. How does John describe Nicodemus? And what does this initial exchange in Nicodemus tell us? Well, let's look how John describes Nicodemus, and he does it in several ways. And in fact, if we're not careful, many readers, as we read John chapter 3, are guilty of what's called eisegesis. We start to read into the scripture what we think should be there, not what the text is actually saying. And the reason that we do this is for many reasons. One of them could be bad theology. Another one could be uh, this desire to assume the best in a character that's being portrayed in scripture, in this case, Nicodemus. So I think it's very important that we read what is scripture telling us about Nicodemus? Who he is? What are his motives? Because if we're not careful, we can come, a, come out the other side of our interpretation thinking that Nicodemus has a sense of innocence and he came with a pure heart seeking to know this Jesus. But I think as we study and read, we'll see that's definitely not the case. How we understand Nicodemus drives our interpretation for the rest of the text today. You've probably heard the phrases, words have meanings. And more recently, there's even t-shirts that say theology matters. And I think in this case, it definitely holds true and we would do well to, to, to hold fast those nuggets of wisdom. So let's actually dive into the text here. So it says that Nicodemus is a man of the Pharisees and a ruler of the Jews. I think we all understand the occupation of the Pharisee. So the Pharisees were the religious elite in Jerusalem who had taken God's holy law. They had added to it, added to it and sinfully crafted their lives around this additional law 
to give the appearance of absolute holiness for the sake of pride and status. So not only had they taken what God had given them in the Old Testament law, they had masterfully added to it so that others would look upon them in awe and astonishment as they lived their lives in absolute holiness. We know thus far from reading in John that every interaction that we've seen, the Pharisees had opposed Jesus. They had no interest in understanding and knowing what Jesus was telling them. Even, we know, towards the end of John, they secretly meet to plot his death. So not only was Nicodemus a man of the Pharisees, but he was a ruler of the Jews. Now this is a a peculiar adjective uh, for Nicodemus, a Pharisee. Usually Pharisees aren't regarded as rulers of the Jews. Uh, They were a pious group that most of the time didn't carry uh, much authority in their title in and of themselves other than leaders of the synagogue. But this title is used for Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This was painting a picture that he was part of the ruling class among the Pharisees. So there was a ruling class among the Pharisees, and he was most likely from an elite family. He was what you might consider to be the equivalent of a U.S. senator, but in the Jewish synagogue. So not only was Nicodemus uh, a highly respected religious figure, he was a a ruler in Jerusalem. So you can start to, to paint the picture of who Nicodemus was and, and what he had to lose. Now, we said that John uses lots of literary clues and hints to, to paint pictures for us in the text. And let's look at one of these literary clues. If you recall, I pointed us to the previous pericope at the end of chapter 2, in which we read that many false believers had been following Jesus, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them, for he knew what was in the heart of man. So you have this word at the very end, this phrase, Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. And this title that was given to Nicodemus says that he was a man of the Pharisees. So Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. And Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees. A commentator writes that this consistent use of man almost certainly was intended to link this pericope with the closing words of the previous pericope. So what John is doing is he's linking Nicodemus to the type of man that Jesus says that he did not give himself to at the end of chapter 2. Those, those followers who were obsessed with the miracles of Jesus. So there's no doubt in my mind that John has given us a description of Nicodemus that links him to the type of follower that we saw at the end of chapter 2. The type of follower that Jesus did not entrust himself to. So that kind of paints a picture of who Nicodemus is. But next we need to ask the question, what does the initial exchange, what is the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus tell us? Well, you probably noticed in the text, it says that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. There's a lot there and we have to understand why. So imagine with me that you're a first century Pharisee You and your family's livelihood depends upon your faithfulness to the Pharisaical law and to your role as a teacher in the synagogue. Imagine that you, as with all of the other Jews, have been waiting for this long-awaited Messiah that you've read in the book of the Law and the Prophets. Now, your picture of the Messiah may be different than Jesus' picture of the Messiah, and in fact, it was. But now this man from Nazareth has busted on the scene, proclaiming to be from God. 
This man's name was Jesus, and his message seems dangerous to your message, your way of life, and your livelihood. But the Pharisees have started to coordinate their efforts to cancel him, as we might say, in Jerusalem. But this man speaks with authority, and this man can work miracles. I know what the scriptures say about the coming Messiah, and Jesus could fit the bill, if I'm honest. It's not how I would have pictured the Messiah to be, um, but he was born in the right place. Um, and John the Baptist, although he was crazy, could have been the messenger in Scripture. So as we jump in the mind of a Pharisee, you can see there's a lot going on here. There's no doubt Nicodemus is curious. He might even be seeking new teaching. But most of all, to Nicodemus, Jesus is dangerous. So how does Nicodemus approach Jesus that does not put him in the spotlight and invite questions from the other Pharisees? How does he do it? He wants to approach Jesus, but how? Well, we read that he goes to Jesus at night in darkness. So now that we've started to understand Nicodemus in context, let's consider the exchange. In the business world, I've, I've witnessed the single greatest asset in the tool belt of a businessman. This, this tool is flattery. When one instantly wants to leverage a conversation, flattery is usually the quickest route there. And things haven't changed in 2,000 years. So Nicodemus approaches this Jesus and he, he calls him rabbi. That's a term of endearment. That's a term of respect um, within the synagogue, which means teacher. So in, in Nicodemus's mind, he goes to Jesus and calls him rabbi. And he thinks he has just disarmed any rebuttal that Jesus may come back with as Nicodemus is approaching him. But what Nicodemus is doing is he's proceeding with a communication of affirmation. And not only a communication of affirmation from Nicodemus, but also from the group of the Pharisees. If you read, he says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In this short phrase, Nicodemus acknowledges Jesus as a teacher. It's true, he was. He acknowledges the miracles that Jesus was doing as being from God, and that's also true. But there's more to what he's saying. We read Jesus' response, start to paint the true picture of Nicodemus' heart. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus responds in a way that we might not have suspected. He starts with this heading, truly, truly, meaning, listen, Nicodemus, to what I'm about to tell you. Then Jesus proceeds to tell Nicodemus that you have to be born again to see or to enter the kingdom of God. You see, at this point, Nicodemus came on behalf of the Pharisees in part to win Christ over. R.C. Sproul writes, Nicodemus went to Jesus to welcome Jesus into the club of the Pharisees. But Christ knew himself what was in man. Maybe Nicodemus came to inquire out of curiosity and gain acceptance from Jesus. But Nicodemus was hiding his primary objective, you see. His primary objective was to protect his way of life as he started this conversation with Jesus. But John is using this exchange to tell us something profound. 
built upon the previous stories of Jesus' call of his disciples. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus here, and I paraphrase, is he's saying, Nicodemus, I'm not looking for infatuated followers or acceptance into your religion. I'm looking for true disciples to follow me into my kingdom. I'm looking for true disciples that are born again. They leave everything and they follow me, Nicodemus. Now there is a lot to unpack there, and thankfully the scriptures provide us clarity, which brings me to my second point. True discipleship is costly. Before we proceed, I'd like to point out a biblical principle at work here. Jesus is doing something uh, that we have studied in the past, and I want to point that out. Hebrews 4.12, it tells us, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, Jesus has addressed Nicodemus, his intentions of the heart with the call to be reborn. And we all know from counseling training, when we approach someone and call out their sinful intentions, the recipient has, has two options. Those two options are either to repent or to rebel. And I think we know which direction Nicodemus starts to go down. <clears throat> Let's read how Nicodemus responds. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a person be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? As we know from the story, Nicodemus responds back with these seemingly innocuous series of questions. He wants to know, how can someone be born again a second time? But we must remember that Nicodemus knows well the idea of being born again. This idea was not foreign to him as a Pharisee. First of all, within the Jewish religion, it was common to refer to a new proselyte, that's a convert to the Jewish faith, as a baby in the Jewish faith, as someone who has been reborn into the Jewish faith. The act of circumcision itself was a mark of symbolizing starting over. So we already start to know that Nicodemus knew what it meant to be born again. Nicodemus came to Jesus wanting to, to learn, maybe adopt some of his teaching and have Jesus follow him. Jesus is saying, no, you're going to follow me and turn from everything that you know to be true. And we start to see the pressure that builds on Nicodemus as Jesus confronts him. Even in the Old Testament, we see scripture such as Psalm 87 that refers to the citizens in the kingdom of Zion or the kingdom of heaven as being born there or being reborn in the kingdom of Zion. As we read, we might perceive Nicodemus's response as a type of soft rebellion. He's, he's not coming outright and rebuking Jesus back. He's, he's kind of playing the fool in this case. So we might see it as a soft rebellion, but Christ doesn't respond in soft correction. He aims right at the heart and he presses in to elaborate the nature of the rebirth. Jesus is drawing a hard line on true discipleship by further defining what being born again actually means. Nicodemus thought he was going to gain a, a, a simple and easy entrance into Jesus' world. And Jesus is telling him, no, you must be reborn to enter my world, to enter my kingdom. So let's read together. As we read forward, 
in the text, as John describes what born again means, we come across some somewhat cryptic, cryptic descriptions that require us to look carefully and, and to consider. Let's read verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This reference of being born of the water and Spirit is, is one that's used in the Old Testament quite often. It means being purified and being spiritually reborn. The primary reference that we could use would be Ezekiel 36, where the prophet Ezekiel is foretelling of the final kingdom and what God will do to make his people. In Ezekiel 36, verse 25, he writes, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You see, God promises to cleanse his people by washing away their filth. And furthermore, God himself will make his spirit, people spiritually alive. And when his people are spiritually alive, they have no choice but to obey his words. So furthermore, we read more descriptions of what being born again means. If we read in, in verse 6, that, that which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. So we can't overlook this profound statement here. When John says, correction, when Jesus says, flesh is flesh and spirit is spirit, Jesus is saying that the rebirth is something completely new, a total recreation. There is no remnants of the old for someone that has been reborn. The change, as you might say, for the engineers out there, is completely binary. There is no remnants of the old and the new. John is saying the flesh cannot even be reformed. You can't take the sinful flesh and reform it to be something that is newer or changed. We have to be completely remade and adopt this identity in Christ. What God is saying to us in this text is that we cannot remain in the flesh and also truly follow Christ. And not only that, but that our rebirth is a complete work of God. We know that God has told us in John 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So we know that God uses the tool of his word preached. And then he chooses to save some in accordance with his own grace. And mercy. And he does this as the wind works, going from here to there. We may see signs of the wind moving, but we cannot see it, and we definitely cannot control it. To further emphasize the nature of this rebirth, Scripture does not leave us to imagine our own ideas of what the rebirth is. We have Peter and Paul who comment often on the rebirth. I'd like to read some of those passages for you. Peter in 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So where we have John building this theology of the rebirth, we have the apostles building on the back of John 
in detail clarifying what the rebirth is. We have Peter saying that according to, to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has taken us from what we were as sinful creatures. And as an unbeliever repents and turns to Jesus Christ, he causes them to be born again. You have 1 Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and the enduring word of God. We have Paul in Romans 6.3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? So Paul brings in this imagery of baptism, where we actually died with Christ and were spiritually raised with Christ. And then 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. I think we've all been encouraged as believers through our lives through that verse. So it's clear the testimony of the New Testament tells one narrative. The Christian is one who has been recreated by the will of God, who has had their heart of stone removed, and God has placed in a heart of flesh in its place. This new creation is not only able, but is bound to respond to the will of God and currently is and, and will be forever counted among the saints of God. While Nicodemus did not have this full revelation of God as we do, he did fully understand what Jesus was saying. And to that point, we read Nicodemus' response. You can, you can feel the point of frustration that he reaches as he is understanding what Jesus is telling him. Nicodemus at best came as an infatuated follower, but has been rejected in a sense by Jesus as being told he must leave everything to be a, a truly born-again disciple of Jesus. And you can almost hear the desperate nature of his following comment. In verse 9, Nicodemus responds and says to Jesus, how can these things be? Let's hear how Jesus responds. Jesus answered and said to him, You are the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we testify of what we have seen, and you people do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, that is, the Son of Man. Jesus here once again sees what is in man as he did in chapter 2. Again, he's aiming straight at the heart of Nicodemus. And if you were in doubt as to Jesus' discernment of the character and motives of Nicodemus, you aren't left in the dark. Again, we see this truly, truly phrase for a third time pressing in on Nicodemus. Jesus cuts straight to the point and openly rebukes the Pharisee with four truths. The first one, the Pharisees are hard at heart. And despite Jesus' testimony, they do not accept his message. So Jesus removes any doubt as to whether the Pharisees are seekers of truth. Nicodemus has come, number two, for higher knowledge of spiritual things. But Jesus knows they won't even accept the basic tenets of the gospel. Jesus wants Nicodemus to accept his testimony and follow him. Number three, all true knowledge comes from the only one who is from heaven the one that came down from heaven, namely Jesus. And lastly, Jesus says something remarkable here. 
He refers to himself as the Son of Man. And we know this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is actually identifying himself as the long-awaited Messiah, as if there was any question at this point. Thus, he's claiming to have infinitely more authority to speak on spiritual matters than the man that approached Jesus as the spiritual expert. Jesus has now completely flipped the tables on Nicodemus. The commentator paraphrases Jesus' rebuke well. He, He says, Nicodemus, you're talking to the one who has come down from heaven. You are talking to the Son of Man in person. And you don't understand these basic truths that my Father has revealed in the Old Testament? You see, this was an illustration by John that shows that the heart truly drives understanding. What may seem as mere ignorance at first glance as we read it casually is really a description of how the heart behaves. You see, Nicodemus didn't understand because he didn't want to understand. And he didn't want to understand because Jesus' call for discipleship was too costly. Now, at this point, the weight of Jesus' rebuke is heavy. It's sitting heavy. It's sitting heavy on Nicodemus. It's sitting heavy on us. The cost to follow Jesus seems like it's too much to carry. But what Jesus explains next is that the cost to follow Jesus has been paid by the very one who calls you to follow him. It's called the good news. It's called the gospel. Which brings me to my third point. True disciples believe and follow Jesus. So what comes next, nestled among this pericope, needs no introduction. We have John 3.16. I would dare to say that most of us in here can quote it without even reading it right now. This verse over the past 50 years has been probably the most memorized verse in all of Scripture. This verse has been rightly rejoiced over but at the same time has been largely misunderstood and sadly has been used as a tool to promote what has become known as cheap grace or easy believism. Out of context, one may read these verses and conclude that John is preaching a no-strings-attached offer of salvation based off of mere mental assent to a set of facts about Jesus. I mean, after all, Jesus makes it simple, doesn't he? He says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But we know this type of mental agreement is definitely not what Jesus is talking about. And how do we know that? Because we have already heard John speak about those who believed and followed him in the end of chapter 2. But Jesus was not entrusting himself to those. So we've seen Jesus call the true disciples We've seen the followers at the end of chapter 2 follow Jesus, believing in his name, but Jesus not entrusting himself to them. So, if we have established that John has in mind a false belief and a true belief, a false follower and a true follower, we must answer the question, what, what is true belief and what is a true follower? We have to know the answers to those questions. Well, first, true belief starts with defining the object of our faith. John 3, 14 through 18 does provide us the very content or the object of true belief. It defines the person and work of Jesus. 
So let's read together, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> and just as Moses lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that, who, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So first, let's look at the person of Jesus. Here we read that Jesus was not, in fact, the Messiah or the King that Nicodemus had hoped or believed in. Jesus was not the conquering King that would come give the Pharisees their rightful place at the top of the pecking order. He was something far greater. Jesus claims several titles in this passage. He, he claims to be the Son of Man, as we said, a reference to Daniel 7. He claims to be God's Son. He claims to be the Messiah. <clears throat> There's a lot there, and we could camp here for a long time, but for today we won't. In short, Jesus was the Messiah that the Jews had been looking for. He was the Son of God. He had taken on the form of flesh as the Son of Man, as foretold in Daniel 7. The point here is that the object of our faith matters. Mere belief in a deity is not enough. Mere belief that Jesus is not God is not enough. Just like Nicodemus' version of Jesus being a mere teacher or the chapter 2 followers who were infatuated with miracles, we too don't have the option to create a Jesus that fits our felt needs. Jesus tells us who he is in Scripture, and we must get that right. Secondly, we have to understand the work of Jesus. The person of Jesus is inextricably linked to the work of Jesus. And what we see here in this text in John 3 is the very beginning of Jesus building this theology that we know of as substitutionary atonement. It is, is what we stake our lives on as Christians. Um, if you recall, the narrative that Jesus is referencing talks about the story of Moses and the, state, and the snake from Numbers 21. And the story goes like this. The Israelites, they had been in the wilderness for some time, and they start to grow impatient. They see that they, they're, they're running low on, on food and water. And they begin to complain. They even complain to Moses. They say, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? If you remember, God sent a great judgment upon Israel's unbelief and apostasy. He sent fiery serpents that began to bite and to kill their victims. And what happened when Israel considered what they had done, they turned back and they repented to the Lord. They asked Moses for help. And the Lord, looking upon their repentance, gave Moses a snake on a staff and said, hold it up in the air. Whoever looks upon this staff will be healed. But what we have here is a story that Jesus is using to say, what the staff with the snake could not fully do, I have come here to do completely. See, the staff and the snake could physically hear, heal the Israelites that were turning back to God in repentance for a time. But what Jesus came to do as he was lifted up 
was to recreate us spiritually for all time. And not only was Jesus the giver of our pardon, Jesus foretells the necessity of his own death to pay the price for his people's sins. John 3.16 reiterates that point when it says that God gave his only son. And through the rest of God's revelation in Scripture, we know exactly what Jesus had to do to save his people. He had to bear the guilt of our sins through the atoning death on the cross to save his people. That's the gospel that saves, and that's the gospel that recreates God's people. At this point, I can just imagine Nicodemus's wheels are spinning as he's putting the puzzle pieces together. This Jesus who has just rebuked Nicodemus for his false belief has just offered himself up as the sacrifice that could save Nicodemus from his sins. So now, we have established that true belief requires the right understanding in the person and work of Christ. And I think I can tell you that most conservative evangelical churches in the world would rejoice in that truth, and, and rightfully so. But where some churches start to fall short is with this statement. True belief creates true followers. We could say that saved Christians act like saved Christians. That's a different claim. And the reason is that following Christ as seen in Scripture, as we see in John 3, is costly and the implications are devastating. Now all of a sudden, if true believers actually act like true believers, we might find ourselves in positions where we have to question the faith of others. Not only is that uncomfortable, it's, it's painful for those that we love. And nobody wants to do that. But it's not me saying it. It's essentially the end of John 3.16 that is telling us that true belief creates true followers. Now we must answer the question, what is a true follower? True followers of Jesus produce fruit and they bear allegiance. So if you remember the question that was considered by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his pursuit to make sense of why all of these German Christians were apostatizing, the question was, what does it mean to consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ? We know from John's gospel so far that Jesus calls the whole man to the new life. We saw with the calling of the four disciples previously that they left their occupations. They professed Jesus was the Messiah. They repented and turned and they followed. But we still don't know what this new life looks like. If we are warned that not all who call on Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, we must know how we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So read with me in chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, so that his deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds will be revealed as having been performed in God. Wow. If we were only taught to memorize just a little more after John 3.16, we would not have grown so comfortable with this idea that there are three classes of people, it seems. 
some of us have grown up to think that there are unbelievers, there are carnal Christians, and then there are devout Christians, as if those categories exist. But what John 3 does here is it essentially annihilates those last two categories. The biblical writer does not allow for the idea that God saves an unbeliever and then leaves him to his own sinful flesh to carry out the rest of his life. In fact, there isn't even a category for the Christian whose life is polished, who has acquitted himself of some of the, the greater sins, the mortal sins of the flesh, and just lives a slightly better life. That, that category doesn't even exist. So let's look at the categories of man that John does describe here. So when we read John 3, as we just did, it sounds an awful lot like Romans 1, doesn't it? That man is totally depraved and knows it. Where Paul writes that unbelievers suppress the truth and unrighteousness, John writes that unbelievers love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. So this is the natural state of man at birth. This is the condition that God saves us from. And this is why our salvation must be a total work of God and not of ourselves. Because man in his natural state hates God. So, it's settled that there is indeed a biblical category for the unconverted. We do see that. But what about the other two categories? The carnal Christian and the devout Christian. <clears throat> well, John describes only one alternative to the destitute state of the unconverted. It is the Jesus follower. Jesus describes here that the Jesus follower is distinct from the false follower of chapter 2. Does two things. He bears fruit and he bears allegiance to Jesus. The, take, the text clearly states here that, those, that there are those who do evil and those that practice the truth. The truth is simple and easily corroborated with the rest of the New Testament, that Christians bear fruit. We, we do good works. James goes as far as to say in the book of James that faith without works is dead. What I don't want you to hear is that we are saved by grace through works. But I do want you to hear that we are saved by grace that works. I think we're on the same page here, but where the text bears weight is how we are to perform works. We are to perform the works, it says, in the light. And what is the significance of this description? There's something here. John, as we said, uses imagery and he's telling us something here. Well, I think that performing works in the light is the key to understanding the cost of discipleship, what Jesus is saying it costs to follow him. You see, this is why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. This is why many of us have been drawn to a gospel that calls for a personal and private faith that is between you and Jesus. Because living out our Christian lives in the light brings accountability to other Christians under the authority of the word. It can also bring persecution from an unbelieving world. Let me say it this way. Living like a Christian requires to bear allegiance to, to affirm, to completely identify with, and to follow Christ in the light so that all may see. Christians don't live their lives in isolation from the light. Christians don't live personal and private lives. They associate with the people of God in community. They are accountable to one another. For Nicodemus coming to Jesus 
in the light would have cost him. He would have been seen. He would have been associated with Christ. For the Christian in Germany during the Nazi takeover, living like a Christian in the light meant doing everything possible to worship the true God in community amidst the fear of death. It meant not capitulating to a different gospel for fear of man. For us today, bearing allegiance to Christ most often means being accountable to one another in a completely self-serving and self-centered culture, a culture of preference. It means living out the 59 one another's in Scripture. You know, Jesus later says in the Gospel of John that all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In closing, now when we read John 3.16, we read that this great salvation that is offered to all who believe is truly a call for us to follow Jesus and to live lives that reflect that calling. To truly believe is more than just agreeing with a set of facts, but it involves a true call to turn away from our sin and to turn to Christ and to follow Jesus. So I have four admonitions for us today. For the unbeliever here, count the cost. Understand this gospel that Jesus is giving. The gospel is good. Christ came to bear the weight, to pay the penalty of the sin of all who would turn from their sin and call on Christ in repentance. Understand that grace is not earned. Grace is offered as a complete gift of God. Realize that there's no category for a Christian in isolation. There is no story for a Christian who is drastically converted and then lives on their own away from community of a local church. And I would also urge you today that the cost of discipleship is completely worth it. The call of the gospel that Jesus gives us throughout Scripture tells us that he is here to be our Lord. All he asks of us is to give up our lives. The cost is small, for Jesus has given up his. For the believer here who is outside community, we might say for the believer who is not really part of a church community, realize there's no category for that either. I would urge you to follow Christ today by committing to pour your life into a local community of believers. Make yourself accountable to a local church. Let them know who you are, where you are, what you do in your spare time. Covenant with them and begin to serve with them. Let your works be in the light, as John says, so that God may be glorified. For the believer on the fringes of the community, this may be a church member who frequents Sunday but may not consider themselves an instrumental part of the church. I would urge you to give yourself up for the sake of your church. That might mean inviting families into your home, calling your church family from time to time, coming early to help us set up this church if you're here. It means starting conversations with those you're not comfortable with, investing your life in the spiritual growth of one another. I would urge you, don't wait on others, pursue others. And for the faithful Christian, the fruitful Christian, don't grow weary in doing good. Desire to excel even more 
Learn from Christ how to, to call sinners to follow him. Christ didn't make an easy gospel to follow. He made a good gospel. Use truth and love to pierce all obstacles between unbelievers and true repentance. And remember that we are called to be faithful and God produces the results. Mm -hmm.